0: The sisters. tomorrow the Feast of our Holy Father among the Saints, Gregory Palamas, the second Sunday of the great Fast, we're going to say some words about the saint, we're going to say some words about his great and important teaching and about our life in Christ. And it is important for us when we celebrate this, the memory of a saint that we don't celebrate simply a historical event we don't celebrate something that came and we remember it But we imitate the saints. we follow after him in imitation and this then becomes a great feast for us personally we say in this in the church every great feast today christ this event happened whatever it might be the resurrection or the ascension or pentecost There is an eternal presence in creation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's present in the saints, and he's present in the Eucharist, he's present in our life. The question is not if he's present, the question is how are we responding to him, and that two two people are involved in this relationship, and both have to come together with a loving heart, with a sacrificial heart, and to be united, and the whole of our in Christ culminates in this communion. This is salvation. Is when we have communion in Christ. This is the point of the incarnation, and this is the the end of our life in the church. If we are not united in Christ, and this is of course what does it mean to be united? What does it mean to have communion? This is the the question that we have to answer. St. Gregory answered this, and believe it or not, The answer he gave, which may seem for those who live the life of the church to be rather obvious, was not at all and is not at all obvious to most who call themselves Christians today. What is the aim of our life as Christians? Is it to be good? Is it to be a good person? Is it to achieve moral, uh, to, to follow the moral law and to complete it? Is it uh, to have a, a good name in society? Is it to be a good citizen? Uh, is it to be to keep the, the, uh, the traditions of the church? None of that is the aim of our life in Christ all of that, if we achieve it, we have yet to begin the life in Christ. That is not the purpose of the Church. It's not the purpose of the Incarnation. And our Father among the saints, Gregory Palamas, teaches us what is the purpose of our life in Christ. We're going to talk about that tonight and learn. His life, if we listen closely to the few things I'll say, unfortunately, in the short time that we have, we can only touch on his teaching, only touch on the high points of that which guides us aright and keeps us on the narrow path, or we can only touch upon those, those aspects. But even his example of his life and his teaching, of course, are great light for us in this darkness in our day and age. You see around us, we live in a society that is the opposite, it's the, it's the undo. Doing of the gospel. We are surrounded, we are immersed, we swim in lies about humanity, lies about God, lies about our origins, lies about the purpose of our life. We hear that we are from apes, we hear that we don't have an identity any longer. Men can become women and women men. Our very identity as biological creatures is put into question today. And we, as Orthodox Christians, need to come back to the basics and understand our identity as Orthodox Christians. What is first this is the hierarchy of things? What comes first, and second, and third? If we don't understand that, then we can be sucked into this, uh, this tidal wave of delusion in, which is in our world today. If we don't understand, if we don't experience it, if we don't understand the purpose of our life in Christ, our children will never resist this tidal wave of delusion which is coming upon us every day. We have to go deeper. You're going to see in the life of St. Gregory that he kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into the mystery of the Incarnation, into the point of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into this world. He is the greatest, perhaps one of the greatest theologians after the three great hierarchs St. Basil the Great, Gregory the Theologian, John Chrysostom. He recognized a pillar of orthodoxy. He stood against the delusions and innovations of his day that were coming from the West. The theologians and thinkers, philosophers, so called theologians who were coming from the West, they were teaching another gospel. And some might say you're, you're extreme, another gospel, another gospel. A different gospel was being taught by the enemies of orthodoxy in his day. It is always that. Every heresy, every delusion is another gospel. It's not the Christ that came to save us. And the same applies to our, our Father among the saints. He stood with, with courage and confessed the faith And so the Church, in great faithfulness, a week after we celebrate the Sunday of Orthodoxy, in which we, what happens on the Sunday of Orthodoxy, we not just commemorate the icons, but we celebrate the restoration of not just the icons, but the Orthodox faith. And then after century after century, what happened was the Church said, after every victory against heresy, we add that celebration to this as well. And so now after a thousand years, of celebrating the Sunday of Orthodoxy. We have included the condemnation of many heresies and the victory of many saints, including St. Gregory in Palamas, but it wasn't enough, they wanted a Sunday dedicated to St. Gregory. So great was his victory for the Orthodox faith in the 15th century. So they celebrate after the triumph of Orthodoxy. In terms of the holy icons and the rest, we have the triumph of Orthodoxy in three major councils, 1351 was the first and most important council, Uh, and and these councils together, taken together, we call the ninth ecumenical council. Many of us have heard of seven ecumenical councils, in fact, it's not just seven. This is a narrative that had come very late to us. We believe, and it's apparent in the synodical documents going back, that there was an 8th ecumenical council and a ninth ecumenical council. The saints commemorate these. And an 8th was with St. Photius the Great, when they put down the arrogance of certain theologians in the West, when they introduced something called the Filioque, which was an addition to the creed, And this addition, which you, if you go today to a Roman Catholic, Latin Rite Parish, or if you go to some of the Protestant, more traditional parishes, you will hear this heretical addition. They don't believe it's a procession from the father, but the father and the son. St. Gregory writes about this. He has two treaties, two treaties against this heretical doctrine. To give you a sense, very briefly, because it's impossible for us to go deep into it, St. Gregory writes about this teaching, and he begins by comparing this medical teaching and the extent of its acceptance throughout the world and the Western world the time to the extent of Arianism in the fourth century. Just to remind you, this talk was entitled St. Gregory Palamas in relation to the West and Roman Catholicism, so part of my goal here tonight is to is to alert you, to to draw your attention to how St. Gregory has was decisive. He was, as it it were, at the the base of the mountain of modernity. We are at the peak now. We have ascended. We are now in the midst of this dissolution of the West. You see, it began in St. Gregory's day with the Renaissance, with the Enlightenment, with all of these philosophical movements in the West which were taking man away from Christ. Western man was leaving Christ behind. What was the Renaissance? It was a rejection of Western Christianity and a desire to return to paganism. What was the Enlightenment? It was a rejection of the whole theory of knowledge and the role of God, the imminence of God in our life. It was a rejection of that. And St. Gregory was at the base of this mountain of modernity, which now we are, as I said, in the midst of. So, he's a light to us to discern where are the boundaries of truth in our day and age, and he pointed to this. And one of the doctrines, as I said, which was a great diversion from the Orthodox faith was the so-called filioque, where we have an addition to the to the creed, to the symbol of faith which we confess uh, every day, every day, morning and evening, we confess this in the morning prayers and the compline. so important it is to us. It is the foundation of our life in Christ. It is the presupposition of the grace. It is the boundaries of, out, out of which if you go, you have lost, you are wandering. That's what the word prelip, or plani, means. Plani, uh, in, in, in Greek, it means to to wander without any, any direction, any perspective, any goal. How many of us, including those who have the name of Orthodox Christian, are wandering, without understanding of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. So we go and we say, these are the boundaries, that the Holy Fathers laid these down. Outside of this boundary, you are wandering without understanding where you're going, you're in plani. Well, unfortunately, this was introduced in the West, in the ultimately in the 11th century and accepted throughout the West. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Three words, and the Son, what is the problem? Is it really that important? Because you see, salvation, isn't it about being a good person? Isn't that really what it's all about? No, it's not. If that were the case, Christ did not have to come. We did not need His incarnation if it was about being a good person. We had that in the old law. Salvation is not about being a good person, it's about being a holy person, it's about being a transfigured person, it's about being one who shines the light of God in the whole man, body and soul, mind and heart, the whole man is regenerated, you can be a good person and do good works and have a corrupt heart and a deceitful mind. And you could be a Pharisee, you could be someone who appears to be good, be a socially acceptable, even a praiseworthy person, and not be regenerated and not understand who Christ is. There are many good people who are far from the light of Christ. Salvation, as Gregory Saint Gregory teaches us, is much, much more than being a good person. And yet, many of us have not understood. Many of us, and I mean all of us today throughout the world in the Orthodox Church, because we have not been properly catechized, because we are, as I said, swimming in a sea of lies about man and God, and we are affected by that. We don't understand, first of all, the goal of our life, which is to be purified of the passions, to become Lord over our own kingdom that the reign of God would be in us, that our heart and the movements of our mind and hearts would be would be driven, guided, and dominated by Christ. And everything that we would think, do, and feel would be Christ in us. That's what happens to the saints. That's what happened to St. Gregory. You'll hear about his life, how he withdrew again and again and again to go deeper into this mystery of the incarnation, to be unified completely, in the Spirit of God, for the Spirit of God to dwell in every thought, word, deed, impulse, glance, desire, everything about Him to be transfigured. So He teaches us in word and deed, by example, and by doctrine, what it means to be an Orthodox Christian. He became this great light. He, he was the father of the Ninth Ecumenical Council. We chant his his in light of orthodoxy, teacher of the Church, its confirmation. O oh, ideal of monks, an invincible champion of theologians. O oh, wonder worker Gregory, glory of Thessalonica, the Archbishop of Thessaloniki, and preacher of grace, always intercede before the Lord that our souls might be saved. This is... Our holy father Saint Gregory. Let's talk about his life. He was born in 1296, end of the 13th century. As I said, at the base of this mountain of modernity, many people think that things went bad 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. The truth is, intellectually, we can trace the illusion of our day all the way back to the schism, thousand years ago. This. This this journey toward dissolution of, of Western society began when the Pope of Rome departed from the communion of the Church. So, three hundred or two hundred and fifty years after this this journey uh, and departure of a large section of Orthodox Christians from the Church into delusion, St. Gregory was born. Gregory's father and mother, devout beyond imagination for us today. They led a fervent life of prayer. St. Gregory's father was an important senator and it says in the life that he would oftentimes be so immersed in prayer in the midst of the sessions of the Senate that they would call upon him repeatedly and they would, uh, uh, as it were, awaken from his ecstasy in prayer. He died at a young age and was made a monk at the end of his life. His mother wanted to leave the world at that time, but she stayed in order for Gregory, who was a young boy, to get a superior education. Already at age 18, he is heard to to, to pronounce and to to deliver the philosophy of Aristotle, so much so in front of the whole court of the Roman Empire in the West, so much so that his teacher said, I did not know if I was listening to, to a young man of 18 or Aristotle himself. But he was not interested in the intellectual life, he was interested in the spiritual life. Are they the same? Are intellectual life and the spiritual life the same? Absolutely not. Intellectual life is the rational intellect, which we use to understand this world. The spiritual life is the heart of man, the spirit of man, and that is far superior. And he wanted that which was superior. He became close to a great and renowned teacher of the prayer of the heart. Saint, soon not formally, but in reality, He is a saint of the church, Theolithos of Philadelphia, the forerunner of the great hesychastic revival in the East, and the prayer of the heart. What is the prayer of the heart? In two words, it is the Jesus prayer, the practice of the Jesus prayer, which then becomes so united to one's heart and mind and soul and interior life that one is continually in the presence of God and watchful over his heart so that no movement of his heart might be affected by the demonic or by the passionate or by the worldly. And this was taught by this great teacher and eventually this Metropolitan of Philadelphia. This was his youth. We often talk about how do we save the youth? How do we bring the youth back to the church? How do we help us keep the youth in the Orthodox faith? And then we turn to worldly means and methods to inspire our youth and we fail. And it is not a surprise that we fail. Every human being is seeking after the truth and and he wants to be free from the passions and we bring them worldly entertainment as if this is going to keep people close to Christ. Christ is not here to entertain us, he's here to free us from the passions. And the youth of our saints are our example of what should be taught and what should be given to our saints. This will keep our our youth today. Only this this avalanche, this tidal wave of delusion that I keep referring to, of immorality. Is it possible that a few crumbs of entertainment is gonna keep someone close to Christ in the midst of such a deluge of delusion? Absolutely not. We need deep prayer, we need to go deeper we need to go deeper if our children are going to stay in the church. At 20 years of age, he leaves the world, 1360, 6, he abandons the vanities, and he does not go alone, but he takes his mother, his two sisters, his two brothers, and they all go to the monastery. This is the, this is the life of the saints. This is the, 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 the families of the saints. They all enter the monastery. And the brothers go to the monastery, They go to an elder there, they make rapid progress in the virtues. You see, prayer is at the center of the life, but if it's not surrounded by the virtues, if one is not denying his passions, if one is not struggling against his anger, his lust, all the things that move it that are contrary to the Spirit of God, prayer is not going to be fruitful. They go together, they have to be together. This is a presupposition of the grace of God, the mysteries working within us, it's a presupposition that when you go to the Eucharist, you walk away changed. If you do not bring those presuppositions to the mysteries, you walk away the same as you let, as you went to the mystery. And so he was obedient, he was humble, he was meek, he was fasting, we're in the midst of the fast. How, much of us, how many of us are fasting? Five days a week without oil. How many of us are struggling against this desire? If we cannot master our desire for the earthly and the temporal and the food, how can we master our desire for worse fashions and deeper sicknesses? So fasting is a prerequisite of the grace of God and it's a, it's a part and parcel of the identity of an Orthodox Christian. He was fasting day and night. He was in vigil day and night, he was renouncing the desires of the flesh and he was uniting himself to God. Night and day he besought God ceaselessly with tears and the the great prayer that came down to us from St. Gregory was the prayer, lighten my darkness Lord, enlighten my darkness. He said this repeatedly to the mother of God and to our Lord. As we say the Jesus prayer repeatedly. We have the prayer rope. We say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me every day. He said, lighten my dark. It's a wonderful prayer. We can all adopt this prayer. The mother of God appeared to him after this prayer with St. John the Theologian. And gave a promise of her protection in this life and in the next because of his pure desire to be enlightened by the light of God. And he was and he became a great light for the whole church. Only three years later, his brother died. His elder then died. And he went with his other brother, Makarios, and they went to the monastery of the Great great Lavra on Mount Athos. And he was a chanter there. He became a Cenobite. He lived, in other words, among the Cenobitic, the, 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 the Brotherhood of the Great Lavra. And he was full of zeal for the evangelical virtues. He was with abstinence and going. It says here something that I'm sure all of us will have a difficulty in understanding and believing because we cannot imagine it. But he went three months without sleep. Let me repeat that. Three months without sleep. How is it possible? Impossible with man and possible with God. When the mind is immersed in prayer, it is as if he sleeps six hours a night. Do you believe that? It's true. Mount Athos, they sleep, there are elders there that sleep one or two hours a night, but they're in prayer six or seven or eight hours a night. And the body and the mind is totally regenerated in prayer. And this is the life of the saints. Three years later of common life, His soul was thirsting for the sweet waters of the wilderness. He retires. He goes to hermitage, and this is the first of many steps of going deeper. You see this process. We are far from the life that he led, but we can go deeper. We have to go deeper. We must go deeper every day, deeper and deeper into the mystery of the incarnation. It doesn't matter where you end up at the end of your life, how deep you go. That is not up to you alone. But you must go deeper and when you leave this life you're in the trajectory of going eternally deeper into the mystery and the lord seeing his zeal purified him and brought him up to great heights of contemplation of the mysteries of god he went into isekia into stillness which is an inner reality it's not just an external reality of course the monks flee the the commotion of the world, so that they might concentrate on prayer, but the of the monk, is an internal silence, a stillness, it's a stillness like as if you're going over the vast sea of the Atlantic Ocean, can you imagine it being totally still with the moonlight? That's the kind of stillness in their soul. There's nothing that tears them away from their intellect being fixed on God. And with compunction, they say the prayer. Many times we pray, but our minds wander and as if we said nothing and we had no connection with God. We have to have compunction. The heart has to be humbled. It has to feel its sinfulness for the prayer to be fruitful and for the tears to flow. And this is what happened to the great Hesychus, St. Gregory. And then because the Turks the Turkish pirates were raiding Mount Athos, he flees with other brothers, he goes to uh, seeks to go to Mount Sinai, but it's impossible, he goes to Thessaloniki, he joins the future patriarch Isidore there, who was, uh, pay attention to this, he was endeavoring to spread the practice of the Jesus prayer among the faithful. There are some people in our church even today who say the Jesus prayer is for the monks. Not true. It's a lie of the devil. All of us are called to say the Jesus prayer. All of us are called to have this prayer rope in our hand and for it to turn continually day and night. No one should, can say, I did, I could not pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Everyone can pray this. From the youngest child of three or four years old, they can learn the prayer, and they can become a hesychist wherever they live. It's one gospel in one way, and St. Gregory and others were leaving the mount to teach the faithful to pray the Jesus prayer. This is for every Orthodox Christian no matter the station in life. And there in 1326 at only 30 years of age he is ordained a priest after being assured in a vision from the, that the will of God is that he becomes a priest. He did not seek it but only the will of God. And then he leaves and he goes again deeper into the asceticism, uh, in, in, in asceticism in a hermitage, and it says here he went stricter in his asceticism, in his ascetic struggle, and what does that mean? We see that, we hear that, we say well, this is not for me, I, I am a house, housewife, I have a job nine, uh, nine to five, I have many distractions. What does it mean to go stricter and deeper into ascetic life? You know what it means? It means to increase the love. That's what it means. Can you increase the love of God? Of course you can. Everyone can. To what degree? That is up to each one of us. And if we do not begin, we will never understand to what degrees we can arrive. Today we are boxed in by all these cares, but if we do not begin to go deeper where we are right now today, those that box around us will remain. But if we go deeper, the Lord will open up the way for us to go deeper still more, which he wishes for all of us. So asceticism, brothers and sisters, is just love of God. You are a mother and you have a small child and they wake up in the midst of the night and they cry and you go and you deny yourself and you sleep for the sake of that child. You are an ascetic. If you love the child and you love God, and you do whatever you do for the sake of that love, you are an ascetic. You are following the ascetics of the Marathos. Asceticism is not just for the monks, it is for every Orthodox Christian, because love is for every Orthodox Christian. Five days a week, he remains alone, fasting, keeping vigil, praying with abundant tears. He's going deeper. He appears on Saturdays and Sundays alone. to serve the divine liturgy. He goes back to his hermitage and he continues to go deeper. His mother then reposes. He, take, he goes to Constantinople, he takes his sisters and he brings them to a hermitage near his own to guide them on the path. And then there are raids from others at that time coming and making life difficult. And he goes back to Mount Athos. He goes back to a, another hermitage there, more secluded more time alone going deeper again into the mystery of the incarnation he only goes rarely on feast days to the monastery you see he's not seeking to be a leader in the church he's not seeking to be a bishop he's not seeking to be a theologian he's seeking god and then god reveals him to humanity as a great teacher of piety he there attains to the vision of god in the light of the holy spirit and to the deification promised by Christ to His perfect disciples. He arrives at the goal of our life, which is total union in God, total union with God, His soul, His spirit, one with the Spirit of God. And then one day, He sees in a dream that He was full of milk from heaven, which as it overflowed, changed into wine and filled the surrounding air with a wonderful scent. This he understood to be a sign from him, from God, that the moment had come for him to teach the brethren the mysteries that God had revealed to him. And then he begins to write several ascetic treatises at the time. He's 1335, he's 39 years old. He becomes then the abbot of a monastery in Mount Athos, Two hundred monks in that monastery, two hundred monks. I don't know if any monastery today has two hundred monks. Two hundred monks. And they do not understand St. Gregory. They cannot understand to what height he's reached. They don't understand his spiritual experiences. And so after one year he leaves. Not many abbots today leave their abbesses. Not many abbots today say goodbye. I'm going back to my hermitage, thank you very much. He does. But the Lord is now like a like a fruit that has been matured and ready to be eaten the time has come for him to defend the faith and the heretic appears from the west his name is Barlam he is from Calabria in southern Italy he comes from the west and he becomes very well known because he's an orator he is a speculative thinker he speaks with a erudite language and people are impressed and he comes to Constantinople and he begins to expound upon the teachings of Saint Dionysius the Arabagite and he entirely interprets Saint Dionysius in a philosophical way and so here is something for us to take away from our theologians if they're true theologians are not philosophers they do not teach the faith in a philosophical way they do not speculate about God they are like Saint Gregory they have experience of God and they speak from experience they see Christ face to face and they describe him and so when the philosopher rises up and says this is what God is all about, they say you're wrong. I know who Christ is, I've seen him, and you do not, you're not describing the way to God and the truth of God and the life of God. And this Barlam comes and speaks about God with cold reason and not out of experience. He is a humanist and he doesn't understand the prayer of the monastics of Athos. And he mocks them when he hears about the way that they pray. And the monks come to St. Gregory and say, Please defend us. This philosopher is mocking us and telling us that we're in heresy, that we don't know what we're saying and doing here with our hesychastic way of life, our life of stillness and prayer. They appeal to him and he begins to write. He writes several polemical treatises. Let me say that again, polemical. He was warring against delusion. We need this prophetic voice in the church today. We need a prophetic voice that will war against delusion and protect the faithful from the wolves which are coming to devour us. The delusions and the lies about man and God, as I said before, we need St. Gregory in our day and age. And he wrote polemical treaties against Barlam and against his teaching. He showed that, Asceticism, fasting, prayer, self-denial, vigil, and all the things that go into rising in the middle of the night to feed our child, all the things that go into being an ascetic and prayer are the outcome of the whole mystery of redemption, the whole mystery of the Incarnation. And they are the way for each one of us. To make the grace given at baptism to, to rise up within us. you know that every one of you that's been baptized has the kingdom of God totally within you? Nothing was missing in baptism. God, Christ gave himself to you entirely. The kingdom of God is within you. You have nothing that's missing except your acceptance of that grace. The activation of this mystery within you. He has come to you. He wants to reveal his kingdom to you. He, the kingdom is within you. But because you and I and all of us are lost in creation, outside of ourselves, we never realize the kingdom of heaven within us. We do not turn within to live within us. We do not hear the voice speaking to us. Our conscience is smothered with our desires and our passions and therefore the kingdom of God is not initiated and we do not live this which has already been given to us in baptism. Again, Christ gives himself entirely to each one of us in every mystery, whether it's the Eucharist, whether it's the baptism or chrismation or ordination. There's nothing missing on Christ's part. The problem is us. The problem is what we have done or not done to activate that. And again, just like in a marriage, if one of the two does not love, does not sacrifice, does not is not patient, well the marriage and the unity of the two is not going to be actualized. It's the same with our loving relationship with Christ and the kingdom of God within us. And he defends the Hesychus, and he said, since the incarnation, we have to seek the grace of the Holy Spirit in our bodies. You see, we live in a day and age where Gnosticism, Gnosticism is a heresy in the ancient church, which is very much alive today. Gnosticism is very much alive. What does it teach? The body doesn't matter. Or indulge the body, give over to the body, become slaves to the body. There's two extremes in Gnosticism. And both of them are heretical. And there's this idea that spiritual life has nothing to do with the body. In fact, it's in with, within the body, within the soul, and only there that the spiritual life can be attained. And St. Gregory is telling us that we seek this grace, not outside of ourselves, but within ourselves. We said earlier that it's within, within that we'll find the kingdom of God. And these bodies that God has given us, this body that we have, is sanctified, is glorified by the mysteries and by the Eucharist. And that's how we're grafted into the body of Christ, through the Eucharist. But again, If we approach the Eucharist, or any mystery, without repentance, without compunction, without purification, without love, without humility, without submission to Christ, all of these things that make this relationship real, we walk away from the Eucharist as a purely created human being, as human. But if we we go to the mystery with all the presuppositions of humility and love and compunction and contrition, and prayer and preparation and purification, which is the life of asceticism, which is the life of love, then we walk away as God-men, as theanthropy, as God-human, and this, re- this reality of Incarnation becomes our reality. This uncreated grace is the very glory of God, it's the presence of God, it's Christ Himself that dwells within us. And it sprang from Christ on the day of the Transfiguration. And so St. Gregory says, on, on the Mount of Tabor, what did we see? Did we see a created reality? Did we see a light like the sun? That's what Barlaam said. That's what this heretic said from the West. And Gregory said, absolutely not. That was Christ Himself revealing Himself. God is light. And the uncreated light, he's not a created light, he's not like this light that we see here in front of us, Nothing like it at all. He is uncreated light, he is God himself that appears and was shining. And when we are united to this light, then we have eyes to see, then we see creation and ourselves and God as he is, as it is. And that's what it means to be illumined. What does it mean to be deluded? To see and understand creation not as it is, but as, in, as, if, as if it was in a haze, as, in, as if we cannot make, make sense of it. What do we see in our society today? People who are talking about God and man and creation in ways that are not true. They do not have a communion with God. They are not illumined by God. They do not see things as they are, and they talk about human beings in a way that has nothing to do with humanity. This is the delusion. So this experience of purification in the church, it enlightens us, and we have eyes to see, and ears to hear, and we see what life is all about, and then we live according to the will of God. So here's the key. This light that is now shining in the heart purified of the passions because the passions are incongruous, they cannot be united, one cannot be united with Christ if he is full of passions if he is full of lust, anger, impatience, judgmentalness, all these things are not of God, they are the absence of God. And so if we are ruled by those, we cannot have this light shining within us. That's why again, I say, I'll say this many times, if we approach the mysteries with that kind of state of our soul, we will not be illumined. It is a presupposition for our illumination but a heart that is purified from the passions. It truly unites to God, illumines us, deifies us, gives us a pledge of that same glory which will shine on the bodies of the saints after the general resurrection. This is a key. So God is not a philosophical concept for St. Gregory. He is love. He is a living person. He is a consuming fire as Scripture says in the Old Testament, who does everything to make us God-like. We were created in His image and likeness. What does that mean? We were created according to the prototype, Christ. And we were given everything to be like Him, and we fell, Adam and Eve, and all the humanity fell from this reality. With Christ, we were reestablished in this reality. With baptism, we were given that image again. We were restored. That marred image is now whole, it's as God intended, but what's missing? The likeness of God. What is the likeness of God? The virtues. All of the virtues that make us like God. That's what's missing. And that cannot be forced upon anyone. That cannot be imparted to us as if if magically. It has to be wanted on our part. We have to desire it. We have to search after it, and thirst after it, and love it. And so, God desires to bring us from baptism, the image, to the likeness, which is deification, which is illumination in God, which is wholeness, the whole man. So, when we, what's proof of our our arrival in this state that St. Gregory's talking about? What's proof of it? The whole man is is deified, the whole man is transformed, the whole man is, is changed. What does that mean? That it's not just that we say right things. It's not just that we keep the law, we're not, we're moral people. It's not that we avoid sin. How many times have I heard this? I don't need to go to confession, Father, because I don't do bad things. I don't kill. I'm not an adulterer. I haven't fornicated. I haven't done these things that people do that are bad. And therefore, I am good. Is this true? Absolutely not. You cannot be good by not doing bad things. That is not what God came to do. He did not come to to just simply stop us from doing bad things. He came to give us life abundant. He came to give us Himself. And so, is there anyone who does not need to go to confession, does not need to confess their sins? Anyone sinless here tonight? There's only one who is sinless. Every one of us has need to come to contrition and (coughs) compunction and confession of our sins and remission of our sins and forgiveness of our sins. What does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness means communion. It's In Greek, when we say forgiveness, it's the word synchordis, and that means to be in the same place, to be in one, to be in communion with God. So if you are forgiven, you are in communion with God. And that is the end of our life in Christ. We, in the whole life of the church, is to this end, that we might be in communion with God, but for that communion to be real, to be to be two people who are united totally, we have to get rid of all those obstacles, the passions. We have to get rid of all that pride and arrogance and judgmentalness and laziness, all these things that are contrary to the presence of God. You see, these things go together. We want communion, we have to overcome and put aside the passions. And this is what the, the great saints taught talking about. So Saint Gregory is teaching us the point of our life in Christ. He's freeing us from these delusions which come from the West, which come from Catholicism and Protestantism. And what is salvation in those confessions? What is salvation there? Is it theosis? No. For the most part, you will never hear theosis even mentioned outside of the church. This this doctrine that St. Gregory has given us, you will not hear it talked about, even among the Copts and the Monophysites. Rarely will you hear the word, and only in the last 50 years for the most part, will you hear the word theosis. They do not talk about it, and this is proof that they do not understand it. Only in the church, only in the saints, only in the doctrine of the Orthodox, like St. Gregory, do we have the fullness, the totality of our purpose in life, every one of us. It's not just for the saints on Mount Athos, for every one of us. Jesus' prayer is for every one of us. This doctrine is for every one of us. This is the end of our life, to be totally united to Christ. So St. Gregory, is teaching us by word and by deed, first he did it, first he became it, and then he taught it. And so this is the biggest problem we have today, why do our children not come? We say again, why do our children not come to the church? Because first we have to do it, and then our words become power. And when we speak to them about Christ, it's not just a human word anymore. It's a divine human word that goes into their heart and changes them. If you read in the scriptures, you will see that they didn't do anything. Nathanael came to Christ and he just saw him and he proclaimed him the King of Israel, the savior of the world. He didn't even need to hear much out of the words of our Lord. The presence himself changed Nathanael and he became a disciple. This presence was the same, this feeling, this transformation, was the same thing that the monks felt when they came to St. Anthony in the desert. You know the story from the Eroticon, when they go traveling again and again and again, three monks went back again and again to St. Anthony, and they said, two of them spoke and asked questions, and the third never opened his mouth. And the third or fourth time St. Anthony said to him, you come here, but you never asked me anything, what's wrong? The Holy Father, just looking at you, was enough for me. You see, when a man, when a human being is transformed, is illumined, is purified, is is glorified, he doesn't need to do much for those around to be transformed, to be changed, to become disciples of Christ. It's not about what we're doing, it's about who we're becoming in the church. Who are we becoming? Christ? God-human theotropy by the grace of God, or are we still very, very human? And you're going to say, well, I don't have the means. I don't have the time to pray as everyone else does. I don't have the means to fast as everyone else does. You know that it's not in those things alone, and even mainly in those things. Those are means to an end. There are many paths up the mountain in the church, in the church, outside, in the church, there's a heresy that's going around, very popular today, it's this idea that there are many paths up the mountain among the religions of the world. Two or three weeks ago, the Pope of Rome was in the Middle East and he signed a document with an imam, right, a teacher of Islam, and in that document he said, the religions of God are willed by God. The religions of the world are willed by God, he said. Total delusion, total heresy for an Orthodox Christian. Unbelievable the, the, the depths that they have fallen in the West. The religions do not save Southern sisters. They are not revealing Christ to us. There are not many paths up the mountain, outside the church, among the religions of the world. There are in the church. So St. Anthony the Great, who we just heard about, he went from his, his hermitage one day after praying and asking God, show me who is like me, who has reached the heights that I've reached. And he was sent to Alexandria to a, a man who... Worked shoes, I think it was. He was working in the, in the basement on a busy street. And the angel showed and went down and he sat down. And the man who was a pious man understood that it was a holy man. He said, what, what have you come to me for? What are you doing? And St. Anthony said, I want you to tell me your life. What do you do? How do you live? I don't do anything, I'm just a, a shoe repair man. I, I don't do anything. No, no, I was, an angel told me to come. I wanna know what you're doing. What do you do here? And he said, I look out the window at all the people passing by and I say, all of them will go to heaven, I alone will be lost. You see, he was not fasting day and night. He was not praying day and night, but he had reached the heights of St. Anthony with his humility. So no one can say, I don't have the means. If you are in the church and you are praying and you are fasting as much as you can, and you are loving Christ with all your heart, there is no obstacle for you to reach the heights. The question is, do you love? And how much do you love? And how much are you prepared to sacrifice for Christ in your daily life? We come every day, every moment of the day, we come at crossroads in our mind. And in our life, we are at crossroads, and we have to decide where is Christ, who is Christ, and am I loving him at this moment in my thoughts, have I lost him, am I wandering in the midst of the world without Christ in front of me, or is he in my life, am I worshipping him at this moment in my thoughts, in my heart, in my words and deeds? thoughts and impulses and desires and every aspect of my body, am I loving Him? Every day we can be loving Him, every second we can be loving Him and praying to Him. There's no obstacle that we can that will prevent us, by God's grace, to be doing that. Every one of us. So the great hierarch comes and has many correctives to our way of life today, many correctives He is a guide of orthodoxy for us who are again in the midst of these delusions and heresies that are the fruit of a thousand years of apostasy from christ many people say uh, how have we arrived at this state of affairs in the world how is it that humanity is so blind and we can't even understand if we are a boy or a girl and what what is at the end of the day Human beings, we don't even understand our own anthropology. How did we arrive at this state? We arrived at this state because we departed from the narrow path in the West. And in so much as we, as Orthodox, have done this and followed this, we are in the same boat. We departed from the narrow path of asceticism, of love. And we started to philosophize about God, and God became a great idea. And then we said, "We said, God, you are a great idea. We will put you like the deist in heaven, and we are going to treat you like a great clockmaker in heaven, and we will exile you from the world. That's what they did in the West. And this is all a result of a heretical ecclesiology and heretical teaching among the followers of the Pope. So much so that today, we call theologians those who sit and speculate like Barlaam about God. These are not theologians, these are not saints. They cannot speak to us of God. They do not have experience like St. Gregory. They cannot speak to us of God. They can only speculate about God. I don't know about you, but if I'm gonna go in a far off land, I wanna, know, I wanna go with somebody who's gonna guide me there who's been there. I don't want somebody who speculates and from the internet has learned the path. I want to know somebody who has experience of this path and has been there and can speak from experience. And these are the saints. These are the saints. He was an experiential theologian. Listen to what St. Simeon, the new theologian, says about this the same vein of St. Gregory. He says, whoever does not attain does not desire, does not desire to attain to the vision of Christ, is possessed of the devil. Think about that a minute. If you do not desire, he's not saying you have to attain, but if you do not even desire to attain, there is no neutrality in the spiritual life. Oh, I'm I'm uh, neutral. No, you're not. You're either with God or against him. He says it himself in the scriptures. You either have made a decision to love God or you are outside, among the ignorant, among the blind. And according to St. Simon theologian, you might even be possessed of the devil. We have to desire. And if you say, well, I don't have much desire. Pray and say, Lord, give me the desire to desire to love God. There's always somewhere we can start. No one can say, I don't know where to begin. Begin by praying that you might love to pray. Begin by praying that you might want to repent. I don't have repentance for this sin. I am habitually sinning in this way. Pray that you might want to not sin. That's where you begin. You see, the humility, we learned about that from the example of the shoemaker. The humility of man is what God wants from us, to open the door of the grace of God. So let's humble ourselves and let's begin to desire, to desire God. For so the God of the philosophers has been put down by our saints. And it's very interesting because St. Gregory said something and we are now living it. Again, I said that he was at the foot of the mountain of this great apostasy we're living. What did he say? He said the failure to distinguish between the essence, God and his essence, and the energies His, his presence in this world will lead to atheism or polytheism. Now, this is one of the key aspects of his theology. Bear with me for a minute. It's important. He says, that to understand that how it is possible that the light on Tabor, the light of God, is real, it's Christ Himself, it's God Himself imparted to us, and we're communion with God Himself, and not a not creation, but God Himself, is this distinction between God's essence, which is totally other, totally unknown to us, totally up close to us, and His energies, His actions his presence in the world there's a distinction both of them are fully God one is present and and keeps this whole world every one of us tonight is in the presence of God even if you were let's say tonight there was an atheist among us or an unbeliever or someone who who was totally uh, rejecting God even that person is in the presence of God the difference is that that presence is not sanctified. That presence is not communion to that person. That presence is is beginning and will be eternally a burning and consuming fire, that presence. But there's no one that does not have the presence of God within them. So the energies, the the reality, the presence of God is in all of creation. What difference is it then between the one who believes and the other one who does not believe? The one who believes is united to that presence, enjoys that presence, is illumined by that presence, is transformed by that presence. The one who does not believe is destroyed. In other words, it becomes a fractured human being. So when we don't have this distinction any longer, in other words, we're a philosopher, we're a speculative theologian, we're saying what the Barlam and the other heretics were saying about the spiritual life, it leads to atheism, it leads to God being exiled, exactly what happened in the West, exactly what happened in the West with deism and all the rest, and to give it some more flesh, because it's very important for us to understand that theology and what we say about God has consequences. None of us should be, after this talk tonight, have the idea that it doesn't matter what we believe. You know that that is what most people believe today. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just be a good person. This is a heresy, a delusion. Of course it matters who we believe. It determines who we will be and who we will follow and what we will do in this life. St. John, St. Gregory says that if the energies of God, the presence of God, was created, in other words, was not God himself, but his creation, as was said, then necessarily it would be a created nature, would be of this world, it would not be God at all. And if God is not in this world, if He's not present, then there is no God in practice for us. There is no communion for us. If God is not in this world and present in His energies, His his own presence in this world, his, His grace, then God does not exist for us. And again, that's exactly what happened in the West, and that's why we're at where we are today in this world. It's a logical conclusion from the theology that was taught among the Roman Catholic theologians and the philosophers that came from the West. It means that there's no operation, there's no relation, there's no communion, and therefore God is exiled to heaven. Last words, and I conclude with this, and then I'm happy to entertain your questions, your queries, whatever issue you might have, whether it be about the talk tonight, or whether it be about something else. The heart of the theology of St. Gregory Palamas is this vision of Christ, this glory of God, this union with God, this real communion. This is the heart of his teachings. And it is this vision, of theosis, that it's not just a matter of wills, like willing to do the good thing. That's not what salvation is. I'm, I'm on the path, I'm willing to do good things. That's not salvation but it is rather the transformation and transfiguration of the whole man. We said, and we'll say again, that salvation is apparent in the life of every one of us when the whole man, the whole person, is being renewed and regenerated and transformed and changed. What does that mean? The way we sit, the way we talk, the way we walk, the way we communicate, the way we think, the way we feel, Everything about us is changed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is in us and guiding us and living within us. Is is there any part of our body in which our spirit, our soul does not exist? No. The soul is in the whole of man. And when it is transfigured, the whole of man is transfigured. So that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be saved. In communion with God. It's not just a change of thinking, although that's important. It's not just a change of doing, although that's important. It's not just a change of theory about how we should live or following the law of God. That is a prerequisite, but it's much more than that. Much more than that. If you are in the church believing the right thing, you still can be far from God. That is not yet salvation. That is a prerequisite for salvation, but salvation is much more than that, brothers and sisters. It is communion with God, it is transfiguration, it is transformation. It is a vision that transcends even our senses and our intellect, and it is a knowing and an unknowing in which the entirety of the human person participates. It's beyond the rational intellect. It goes into the deepest recesses of our hearts. On the other hand, the Latin theology, heretical theology, is the belief that every level of knowledge is of God is just rational. So, how do they approach those who do not have the grace of God, and do not understand God? How do they approach God? They approach Him as they approach anything else which is created, anything else which is in the world. They approach Him like they would to learn philosophy, to learn science, to learn a trade, a skill. That's how they approach God, but that's not how we approach God in the church. God is not that small. God is not that limited. God is not an intellectual pursuit. God is a consuming fire that transforms our whole being That happens when we go to the Eucharist, the mysteries, prepared, repentant on the path of return in humility, submission, and love of God. Thank you very much for your patience.